Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, providing financial support to the community for 55 years, promoting healthier lives and the advancement of future health care in our region, working together for a healthier tomorrow. More at bloomhf.org. And from Estate and Downsizing Specialists, LLC, offering complete turnkey services for estate and downsizing clients, from initial consultation through home cleanout to final real estate and personal property sales. More at edsindiana.com. Welcome to Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm your host, Bob Zaltzberg, along with co-host Lori McRobbie, and today we're going to talk with guests about issues with the debt ceiling, uh, perhaps some banking issues, and inflation in general. We have three guests. One is here in the studio with us. Denville Duncan is an economist and associate professor at the O'Neill School of Public and Environmental Affairs at IU. Joining us by phone are Craig Johnson, associate professor at the O'Neill School of Public and Environmental Affairs at IU, and D.J. Masson, who is a clinical professor of finance at the Kelly School of Business at Indiana University. If you have questions or comments, you can phone us at 812-855-0811 or toll-free at 877-285-9348. You can also send us your questions on Twitter at Noon Edition, or you can send them to news at indianapublicmedia.org. Well, welcome to all of our guests. We had a little technical difficulty, but I think we have everybody on the air now. Um, I'm going to start with Denval. We were talking here before the show started about just the, defining some terms to start with, you know, debt versus deficit and the debt ceiling. Just give us a primer. Sure. Uh, well, thank you for inviting me, and I'm kind of excited to be here. Uh, so I think the way to define debt Maybe we start with revenue and expenditures, actually. So if you think of running an operation, a business, you have revenues coming in from the product that you're selling, and you have expenditures kind of going out based on the cost of producing that product. Now, if it turns out that your expenditures exceed your revenues, then it means that you have a gap. And that gap is generally what we call a deficit. In the business world, you might say you've making, you're making a loss. In the public sector, we we generally don't use profit and loss. We use surpluses, deficits, that sort of thing. So think of the deficit as maybe an analogy will help. Think of the deficit as like a river that is just running. The debt is then the accumulation of these deficits. So in year one, you're running a deficit. In year two, you have another deficit. In year three, you have another deficit. So as you start to build up all of these deficits, that accumulates into what we would call a debt. So the analogy then would be to think of the debt as a pond and the deficit as a river that is running to that pond. And as long as that deficit is running, that pond continues to swell, right? It starts to grow. So that, that's maybe one way to think about deficit versus debt. One is something that happens annually. The other is just an accumulation of what's happening annually. Um, the debt ceiling is a slightly different idea entirely. It's, it's basically a rule that says, as a government entity, in this case, the federal government, you are not allowed to borrow more than X, you know, whatever X is. In this case, I think it's close to $32 trillion. Um, and it just means that the accumulation of all these deficits, and there are, it's not only deficits that will lead to uh, a debt, but the accumulation of this debt over time, you know, it hits a ceiling. And at that point, you are, your hands are basically tied. Like, you know, issuing new financial uh, debt instruments becomes somewhat limited. Um, and that's pretty much the three ideas. Mm -hmm. um, one is just a rule that caps how much you can borrow. Uh, one is a flow, the deficit, and the other is the accumulation of those deficits. All right. Well, Craig Johnson, we've, you know, in the, the news lately has been about, you know, whether we raise the, the deficit, the, the deficit ceiling. Um, and in the past, we always have without any kind of – well, there's always been discussion. Recently, there's been a lot of discussion, but it's always gotten raised. This year, 
they're like extraordinary what what is it extraordinary measures that are happening yep. can you can you sort of frame that argument or that discussion that's going on is there what's the legitimacy of that discussion craig well the legitimacy of the discussion is simply that uh, the current level of uh, spending and borrowing what denville um, actually described as uh, the deficit <clears throat> is really unsustainable. I mean, if you keep financing um, a deficit over an extended period of time and it just keeps growing, um, you have a situation with a similar situation we have now um, to where the, the debt is just growing at kind of unsustainable, unsustainable level. So you have to make some hard decisions. And one of the hard decisions is kind of, well, what do you do in terms of spending? What do you do in terms of borrowing? And the debt ceiling discussion kind of forces you to deal with that issue. So in that sense, it's a, it's a good thing uh, from a fiscal perspective. On the other hand, though, the, the debt is sold. Uh, we've accumulated this debt to, to finance more current spending than we were, were able to finance with current revenues. And um, the bottom line is um, we've incurred current liabilities that have to be paid for. So we're, we're basically arguing over whether or not we should borrow additional money to pay for the liabilities that we've already incurred, not new spending. And that's a problem because that puts into question, kind of like 2011, um, our, our willingness to pay. And, and that's a problem in general because the, the United States' willingness to pay should not be challenged. And it definitely shouldn't be challenged from our own internal actions or inactions. So uh, back to your question about extraordinary measures, there's basically extraordinary measures that could be taken to kind of manage the liquidity from a cash and debt management perspective in the federal government uh, for a limited period of time. And uh, the Treasury is going to take probably as many liquidity measures as they can to deal with uh, just generally not paying bills that are owed um, immediately, um, not rolling over um, uh, in investments that should be rolled over for things like pension funds. And then also kind of just moving money around um, in terms of refunding and refinancing things that, that can be done over a limited period of time. Um, but those ex quote unquote extraordinary measures, um, you know, they don't last forever and they're scheduled to expire by the um, sometime in early fourth quarter of, uh, of this year. And so then we have we run into another problem. Well, from a political perspective, what are you going to do? Um, the ceiling needs to be to be raised, and, but it needs to be raised in a responsible manner. And I think we, we, we did that, or at least the blueprint for that is in the kind of the Budget Control Act of 2011. And um, that at least serves as kind of maybe a guide for the current uh, Congress to, to deal with this crisis, which is really, uh, to a fundamental extent, it's really a self-imposed crisis, and it, uh, it really needs some type of uh, self-regulation, um, if you will, by the Congress. DJ Masson, I, I want to ask you about the impact on all of us out there. You know, we're talking about uh, the kind of money, you know, $31.4 trillion as a national debt that really, I don't know that the normal human being can <laughs> can really understand that. But with this debt ceiling crisis, what are, what are the stakes for us, for individuals who are out here trying to figure out if this is really an important issue or not? Well, you know, if you think about it, um, I, I think I ran some numbers. That works out to about $94,000 a person here in the U.S., um, which, which does sound like a lot of money. Um, but what you have to look at is the money was, in fact, spent, and um, as uh, it was already mentioned uh, by Craig, uh, the U.S. has already authorized that spending, and we just need to authorize the borrowing to go ahead and pay for it. Um, in the long run, um, and again, this is my personal opinion, that um, the big problem right now is that we don't have enough revenues coming in. It basically means taxes need to go up. Now, that's politically... Um, I guess, unacceptable in a lot of different areas. But, you know, if you look at it, um, we've got uh, demographics. So we've got an aging population, um, which means that 
uh, not as much money is coming in from some of those uh, aging population factors. We've got rising health care costs. We're like double uh, health care costs per person relative to the rest of the world. And as I said, insufficient revenues um, with the big tax cuts that occurred back in 2017 and some of the other factors, you top, put on top of that the fact that we had historic spending, especially during COVID, and to try to get the economy going again, it's just all adding up to it. That's where that, that, that $31.4 trillion comes from. And, and honestly, in my mind, yes, you can try to cut spending, but nobody wants to cut anything. Um, but I think we could agree, at least if you look at it in a genuine factor, that we aren't taking in enough money. We need to increase taxes. I want to uh, follow up on that just to, to try to get – and I'm going to start with, with Denville, and others may want to comment, too, on – where we are in terms of the what's going on in Washington around this issue, because we've certainly been at this point before. In fact, I think uh, three times just during the Trump yep. administration. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there were probably pandemic had had something to do with that. Under normal circumstances, and let's just start by saying right now doesn't appear to be very normal. Let's hope it's not. Doesn't become normal. Um, how do lawmakers um, typically? Generally, how should they be approaching this question? What sort of factors do they typically take into consideration just with respect to the to finding an appropriate debt ceiling? Because they can't just – I mean, they have to raise it, but they have to raise it to something else, right? Right. Um, so I think you have two responses so far that I think alludes to maybe the way to go. And um, one of them has to do with the budgeting process. Uh, so Craig already mentioned that the debt ceiling, or at least the current debt and the debt ceiling issue, are all connected to decisions that have been made in the past, right? So, so the way the budget process works, and I'll try to come back to your question, is you make some decisions about how much you plan to spend. You do some sort of forecast to figure out how much revenues you expect to get in the, in the uh, upcoming fiscal year. And there's a, generally a gap between those two. Historically, it's traditionally been the expenditures are higher than the revenues. So that creates this deficit that we talked about. And then in an ideal world, what would happen is the policymakers would then make some decisions over how they plan to finance that deficit. So those are all decisions that get, should be made before the fiscal year actually starts. Now, once the fiscal year starts, there should no longer be a debate about financing that gap. Like, that should be part of the budgetary process itself. What we're observing now is a situation where you have what I would call a fake budgetary process. We could talk, if you want, about what the budget process should look like and then what actually happens. But we have some decisions made about spending and expenditures. And then ex post, we now have this debate over whether we will fulfill those that gap that we decided on, right? So some majority in Congress decided on a spending and expenditure, a revenue and expenditure plan. So it's, it's somewhat problematic to now exposed be arguing over a plan you already approved, so to speak. Now, back to your question of, well, how do you decide what that number should be? And I honestly do not have an answer for you, to be honest with you. Um, because, you know, generally when you're borrowing, like if you were to take this from a personal standpoint, right, you are going to the bank, you're looking to borrow some money, the bank is going to look at your capacity to repay, right? And they'll collect some information that allows them to estimate the likelihood that you, one, will repay and that you have the capacity to repay. And that usually is used to set the maximum amount of money you're able to uh, receive. That analogy doesn't translate very easily to the federal government that has the ability to, you know, literally print money, so to speak. So it's it's kind of hard to know what the optimal uh, debt limit should be. In my mind, there probably should not be a debt limit because all those decisions should come directly from your budget. And if it's coming from your budget, then what you're deciding is how much do we want to spend and how much do we want to collect in revenues? And those two decisions decide how much you need to borrow. And the story ends right there. So, so that would be my, my answer, yeah. is that the optimal debt limit is probably zero. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, it, and there didn't... Or infinity, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, as you say, driven by our, the budgetary process, that so there yes. shouldn't be a separate, if you will, debt ceiling and, raising process. Right. In my mind, 
you should make a decision over how much you want to spend, and there should be goals and strategies yeah. that lead that decision. And you make some decisions over your tax policies, and there should be some goals and some some kind of uh, philosophical views that drive those decisions. Your debt decision is then just the product of those two earlier decisions. Yeah. So it, the the idea of the debt ceiling arose. Did it? Am I correct in saying it arose out of the experience of this country during the Great Depression in the 30s? It's not. We didn't used to have a debt ceiling. It was brought in some many, many years ago. Uh, now, yeah, back in 1917. Ah, uh, uh, okay. Oh, before. before. Uh, so be- even before we were uh, really engaged yeah. in World War One. So, so there. So it was brought yeah. in at that time, presumably to help control. The budget process, but at any rate, that's now over a hundred years old, and yep. here we are. But um, we haven't always, in our history, had this. Craig, DJ, do you, do you want to uh, yeah. comment on 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 yeah, what Denville said? Yeah. Yeah, I would just. Uh, I mean, I agree with Denville. I would just add to that. So we do have a, uh, a budgeting process, and we have a, a forca- budget forecasting process that the CBO goes through. OMB goes through, and we have what we're now calling a congressional budget. That's what President Biden's called it really is the budget uh, resolution, congressional budget resolution, and that deals with uh, estimating your budget, you know, revenues and expenditures over or outlays over a five-year period. And the CBO forecast and OMB forecast are usually ten-year forecasts. So, at a minimum, uh, the way I'm thinking of it, if you're going to budget for your your revenues and your outlays over a five or ten-year period. Um, then you should have a debt limit or debt ceiling that covers those uh, the deficits that are run over those uh, that period too, or five year or ten year period. At a minimum, um, it shouldn't be subject to um, an annual budget process, and it shouldn't be subject to kind of the political fiscal cycle either, if you will. And that's kind of generally what we end up doing, and we end up um, setting a debt limit that we are likely knowingly likely to um, to hit before uh, a presidential election. And that's a problem, because that really brings politics full square into the process. And it should be a non, this should be a non-political process. It should be a fiscal process or an economic process that looks at kind of what's best for the nation as a whole, not kind of what's best for us individually in our political tribes, if you will. Yeah. We're talking about uh, some very interesting and very um, sort of complex budgeting issues for the federal government and, uh, of course, everything about the federal government ultimately affects each one of us. So we're talking about that with three uh, finance experts today. Denville Duncan is here in the studio with us. He's an economist with the O'Neill School of Public and Environmental Affairs at IU. Craig Johnson is an associate professor at the O'Neill School as well. And D.J. Masson is a clinical professor of finance at the Kelly School of Business. If you have questions or comments, you can contact us at news at indianapublicmedia.org. You can follow us on Twitter and send questions there. At Noon Edition, you can call us 812-855-0811 or toll-free at 877-285-9348. DJ, I was struck when you mentioned that nobody wants to cut anything. I think that's true, but if you look at the populace, it's maybe also true that nobody wants to pay higher taxes. So how, how how do you balance those things? Well, you know, it, in the end, it, it is a function. Um, I, I think that, um, you know, Craig said this earlier, it, it's a function of revenues and expenses. Um, the, the, the revenues primarily come in from taxes and some other resources, um, and the expenses obviously defense and social spending and all the other things the government spends on. And I, I think the big problem is, in my mind, lack of revenues. And I mean, I know nobody likes to pay more taxes. I mean, God knows I added up what I paid on taxes and it's, it's way too much, but I would pay more if necessary. Um, you know, we need to, at, at some point, Congress has, and, and the uh, president have determined uh, what they're going to spend money on, you know, by one way or another, and we need to have the revenues to cover that. And so the only way to do that is by increasing taxes. Um, I mean, yes, you could cut programs, but as I said, nobody wants to cut the programs. Um, 
Yeah, I'm you, not sure what else to say on that. Yeah, well, I, I appreciate it. You, I mean, you, you've all brought up the, you know, the issue of politics, and politics has really infected this system of how to finance the, the federal government. I mean, what uh, do we have any? Are there any solutions to that, Denville? So I don't think we can hope to extract politics from these kinds of decisions, right? Because if you think about the way, and I, I said earlier that we don't have a budget process, and I maybe just clarify that, and then we'll talk about how the politics comes in. There is a political, there is a budgeting process in place, um, and that budgeting process should, over the course of roughly a year and a half, lead to or result in twelve appropriation bills, and. Kind of the one of the key features of this process is that you start out with a vision for what you would like to see in the coming fiscal year, and generally maybe a couple of years after this. So think of having a strategic plan, right? The economy is in shambles. We're recovering from COVID. There is high inflation, and and then you try to think, well, there are some policies we might want to implement in order to address some of these issues. Maybe we want better infrastructure, whether it's telecommunications or roads, and you have a budget process that then allows you to translate implementation of those goals into dollars. And then you have a forecasting team that says, well, we have all of these revenue mechanisms, or at least we need to pay for all of the things we want to do. How are we going to do this? We have taxes, or we might need to do some borrowing in the short term. And I think fundamentally, those are all political decisions, right? So it's, you know, should we invest in telecommunication infrastructure or should we invest in roads, right? It's not clear to me that my view of what we should invest in is the best one, right? So then you have political dialogue and people have different views, but you try to come to some agreement on what those investments are going to be and how you will finance them. So that process is there. I think if you look at the data, what we generally will get at the end of the, uh, this whole process is what is called a continuing resolution. Uh, so we don't get 12 appropriation bills. What we get is something that says you can continue to spend at the levels you were spending at in prior years, and you can do so for a week, a month, for the next three months. And you get a bunch of these passed. So if you look historically, the way the federal government has been financed has been largely through, and when I say financed, I mean the process by which budget authorities extended to the federal agencies is largely through these uh, these uh, CR bills. And a fundamental problem with relying on CR bills is that it doesn't necessarily facilitate the type of strategic planning that the budget process allows for. And so you end up with you know, agencies that are maybe not well functioning and spending maybe more than they want to spend or maybe spending on the things they don't necessarily want to spend on. Um, and, but fundamentally, those are all political decisions. I don't think we can hope to say, well, we should separate the politics from these decisions because someone has to decide what to do and people will disagree. I think what we need are policymakers who are willing to engage in the kind of dialogue that will allow us to move from my extreme view and your extreme view to something that we can all agree on that is you know, in the best interest of the country. And that applies both to, to the expenditure side and mm -hmm. the revenue side. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. I, I wanted to follow up on this this uh, comment, uh, DJ, I think you were talking about, and Craig, you as well, about needing to raise revenue um, clear, clearly. Is there is there not another potential source, which is better collection of taxes that are already owed? So I note that in the um, Inflation Reduction Act was increased funding of the IRS, which was intended mm -hmm. to help. Uh, um, obviously, that agency has been um, very underfunded, and there have been a lot of issues with that. And the idea was that we would have enough capacity there to be able to really tackle the kind of kind of thorny issues that have come up from people who are very good at evading taxes. But then, in theory, in theory, the um, uh, the um, the, the amount of taxes owed, we're not collecting what's owed. Right. So if, if uh, uh, Denville, you, and I think probably all, all three of our guests could probably comment on where that stands, whether that, whether that's an effective, a, effective strategy, whether it's actually likely, likely to take place. Denville, you go ahead. I think okay. we, may, we may have, I'm not sure if we've lost one of our guests or not, but Denville, you take okay, this one sure. first. <laughs> um, 
Yes. Yeah, so you do have, you know, you make your political decisions over how to collect revenues and, uh, you know, taxes is this is the main source of revenue for pretty much every government. And a lot of that goes or at least some of it goes uncollected. Let's put it this way. Mm-hmm. Now, for the feder- at the federal level, you can then ask a question like, what is the magnitude of the uncollected taxes? And the f- it turns out that the Internal Revenue Service conducts a type of study called a tax gap analysis. They they run this uh, pretty much you know, every couple of years. Um, the tax gap at the federal level is running usually somewhere between 14 to 16 percent. What that means is if you take the total amount of taxes that should be collected and compare it to the amount of taxes actually collected, there is a difference between those two numbers. And that difference is roughly 15 percent on average of the total amount that should be collected. So if you think of increasing revenue collection as a means of helping to finance this problem, then you're looking at about 15%. Now, what does that translate in terms of dollars? It's usually somewhere about maybe about $400 billion, 350 to $450 billion. Um, the federal deficit is running at maybe $1.5 trillion, I think, for 2022. So. You kind of get a sense of scale if you're comparing roughly $1.5 trillion in deficits, so expenditures exceed revenues by about $1.5 trillion, to potentially collecting at most an additional $350 to $400 billion in, in revenues. So it goes away, right? I mean, $400 billion is not a small amount of money by any means, uh, but it won't close the gap, mm-hmm. is maybe the point I'm making. If I can follow up on that, of that 15 percent, do you have data about how much of that 15 percent are higher-end taxpayers versus the middle income, you know, the middle class? So I don't have that data at hand, but I can tell you that the the lion's share of that 15 percent is usually coming from business income. Um, But business income, you know, think, you know, there are corporations, there are, you know, LLCs, partnerships, farms, and and so on. And so business shouldn't be interpreted as C corporations, but just, you know, uh, uh, businesses in general, really. And actually, I think, if I'm not mistaken, the majority of that is uh, business income collected under the personal income tax rather than the corporate income tax. Um, And that would make sense because the personal income tax is roughly... 50% 50% of the revenues collected by the federal government. So it's, it's, it makes sense that the big, largest portion of that gap would be among the revenue source that generates most of the revenues. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of one thing. So yeah, you could invest in the IRS and hope to collect some additional revenues. I think one, the amount you could collect wouldn't close the gap. So I think you definitely have to think expenditures or uh, taxes. Mm-hmm. The other is whether the investment in the IRS will yield the return. Mm-hmm. That, I think, is a question that is worthy of investigation. I, I myself, am not, I don't know, you know, whether it will. Um, you know, so, so it's hard to yeah. know whether yeah. this roughly $80 billion, like what will that translate to in terms of closing uh, the tax gap? I, I, I don't have an answer for that. Yeah, one. yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you know, I I, I would jump in here, too. I would agree with that, that definitely we can get a lot of, uh, I mean, a significant amount increase just from uh, applying the tax codes and following up. But at at some point, we probably do need to look at increasing some of the tax rates. I mean, the uh, corporate tax rates were dropped to historic lows back in the 2017 tax cut, and maybe we need to look at pushing those back up again. But one, one, one positive note that I will tell you is if you go back and you look at the deficits in 2020 and uh, 2021, those were like $3 trillion and $2.75 trillion respectively. We're under $1.5 trillion deficit this year, um, which is sort of back to at least the normal trend line that we were on through, you know, through the teens until we hit the COVID epidemic. So at least that's that, one good thing. The, the deficit is significantly lower this year than it was the prior two years. We have a couple of questions that have come in uh, to our producer. One is from Valerie, and the question is, 
where is the government borrowing money from? Craig, can you explain that? Uh, the government borrows money from everybody. Basically. <laughs> U.S. Treasury securities are sold throughout the world. Um, they're in all our uh, portfolios. Um, I mean, you and I, uh, domestically as well as internationally. Um, they're especially in the portfolios of, of big banks and big investment companies. Um, they're uh, bought by um, uh, the U.S. government, but they're also bought by other governments. So China spends a lot of money buying our securities. Japan spends a lot of money buying our securities, as well as uh, many other countries. All right, and we have another question. This one is from Guy. He says, while he understands inflation would be the problem for this, he wants to know why we can't just run the printing presses and pay off the debt with new money. Who wants to take that? Well, I, I, I mean, I'll talk about it a little bit. Okay. Um, and this, you know, is, this look, is DJ, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. this is DJ. Yeah. Look, the government basically has four tools that they can use to control the economy. Um, under monetary policy, they've got money supply, which is printing money. They've got interest rates, which they've been increasing. On the other side, the fiscal side, they've got taxes, which is the revenue side, and obviously they've got government spending, which is the expense side. So let's talk about money supply. As a result of the going all the way back to the 0708 crisis, as a result of, of COVID, a lot of other factors, right now the government has pretty much maxed out the money supply. Um, they really are effectively printing money because what happens is when the Treasury issues a bond, and the Federal Reserve buys those bonds directly, that's just like printing money. It's putting money into the economy. So we've put about as much in as we can right now. You can't just run the printing presses. Um, we've already kind of filled up the coffers, if you will. Yeah, I, I might just jump in as well. So, you know, people, in terms of monetary policy, we usually think of this as uh, trying to expand or contract the amount of money in the economy. And that's one way, uh, it's a big tool used to control, let's say, inflation, right? And that's what the Fed has been doing. You notice they've been raising rates and that is going to kind of try to, uh, um, you know, kind of shift money around in a way that will reduce the amount of, let's say, uh, aggregate demand in the economy and then cause prices to fall. And that's one way of, you know, increasing or reducing the amount of uh, money supply. Another way, as I think your speaker might be mentioning, is, you know, going to the Mint and just printing new $100 bills. And that is another way of increasing money supply. But it, the problem there is, you know, it increases money supply. And if you increase money supply too rapidly, you can, you know, it can lead to some disastrous impacts on your economy, particularly uh, what is known as hyperinflation. Um, and that's, you know, we're seeing the effects of inflation and the how aggressive the government has been going at trying to rein in the variation in prices. So I don't think we want to be in an environment where prices are moving up, not just moving up, but moving up very rapidly. Uh, so the, the cost might just be too high relative to any gains you get from, you know, addressing the, the debt ceiling through other means. We have about 20 minutes to go, so I want to give our numbers again, 812-855-0811 in Bloomington, toll-free at 877-285-9348. You can send questions to news at indianapublicmedia.org, and you can also send us questions to Twitter at Noon Edition. Yeah, I want to come back to, I mean, inflation has obviously been the, well, it was the big story right before the, the debt ceiling and and now banking, which we may get to before the hour is out. Um, how does inflation? How is inflation affecting the uh, the debt ceiling discussion? Obviously, it affects the budget. Um, um, how is it? Is, is and is it uh, affecting how people think about how our legislators think about the debt ceiling? Even though that's obviously covering uh, debts we've already incurred, but we're it, maybe those are more expensive now because of infl inflation. And uh, Denville, you, I think, Craig, you can also take this one. Yeah, I could start. Well, oh, uh, okay, yeah. I'll take it, uh, at least to start it. The um, uh, inflation is, is, uh, is going to have, has had, is having, and will have a, a very significant impact on your outlays. This makes things more expensive. So your outlays are going to be greater. Um, 
usually it would have an effect on your revenue side as well because it would be ha- having an impact on the economy. But it doesn't seem like it's really dampening economic growth at this point. Um, but we don't know what's going to happen in the future, and the projections are in the future that economic growth will will slow. Um, over the long term, though, uh, this problem really sets up uh, a, really a cyclical kind of unsustainable problem because it's going to it's affecting your borrowing costs dramatically. Uh, the federal government's borrowing costs are going up dramatically. If the borrowing costs go up, then interest expense goes up as well. Interest expense is like entitlements or mandatory spending. It's one of the first things that are paid for. Probably interest expense is actually the first thing that is paid for out of the federal budget. So as your yep. as your borrowing go as your borrowing costs go up, your deficits are likely to go up in the future. Okay. As uh, admittedly they have gone down, uh, as DJ mentioned, um, but they're expected to go up in the future because of the increase in interest expense and also mandatory spending, Social Security, Medicare, et cetera, requirements. Um, so that, over the longer term, that puts a dramatic impact on your budget flexibility because if most of your budget is going to mandatory spending and interest, you just don't have a lot of spend, a lot of capacity for spending on other things, discretionary spending, defense and non-defense in particular. Um, so the basic idea here, though, is that you want to, we want to lower borrowing costs, and one way you can lower borrowing costs is by borrowing less, right? Yeah. And maybe just to, just to add a little bit, so I think Craig kind of outlined a direct path through which, uh, you know, inflationary pressures will affect the budget, the deficit, and then obviously this debt ceiling uh, conversation. Another is whenever there is inflation, as we've been experiencing, the Federal Reserve, through its mandate, tries to attack inflation, right? They're trying to reduce uh, inflationary pressures, and they do that mainly through interest rate policies. And so that causes interest rates to go up. And then everything Craig says just amplifies because as those interest rates go up, the cost of uh, the debt, the cost of servicing the debt goes up. Um, And then, you know, you can end up in this kind of spiral situation where you're having to reallocate more and more or allocate more and more of your resources toward financing debt because interest costs are so high relative to other things that people care about, roads and health and education, and, you know, that kind of thing. So it's not, it's not good. <laughs> to be sure. Well, yeah. And, okay, can I simplify this for, for those of us who need the simplification? So it's like if I have a credit card and I've got a $20,000 balance on my credit card, that means each month I'm paying $500 in interest on it, which means I can't pay off the, the credit card because I'm paying interest too often, right? Yeah, that's part of it. Is, is more and more of your your income in a given month is being redirected to financing this credit card. Uh, that's one problem, and obviously a big problem. I think another problem that we've identified is is that every five hundred dollars that you allocate to paying that credit card bill is five hundred dollars you can't spend on something else that you really care about. Mm-hmm. Right? You don't care about the credit card bill. You care about, you know, shelter and clothing and food and, you know, that sort of stuff. And so every time you have to reallocate more, if that $500 become 1000 and becomes 1500 then you just have less to spend on the other things. Mm-hmm. And that applies equally to governments. Um, yeah. you know, it means less yeah. on education. It's less on health care. It's less on roads. It's less on information technology. It's, it's less on all of the other things that we really care about. No one cares about, you know. Interest reflects the things that we have already, yeah, you know, because right. it's paying for things that we've yeah. already spent right, money on. Right, right. Not to mention there's an opportunity cost, too, as you were talking yeah. about these strategic ideas yeah. that the government should be um, incentive, incentive. I mean, we can think of, you know, things like the, you know, NASA, the space yeah. program, the Internet, the, yeah. you know, um, interstate uh highway system, et cetera, things that were ma- major investments by the yeah. government at different times that have, have paid off, and you don't have those uh, that ability either. Um, well, this is, this is clearly the debt, the debt, the, the, the debt certainly is, becomes a drag not only on today, becomes a drag on tomorrow. Those are the kind, this idea that we're burdening our grandchildren. Uh, those were, you know, those were all things that I know I've heard kind of all my adult lifetime. But in a, in a sense, I, is it fair to say that is we are also paying the price of past 
problems with bringing spending and revenues into control and, and managing our, our policy even more. So this is this, it, this idea that we are burdening future generations is uh, is real and something that needs to also affect. I would think, and so I just I sort of toss that comment yeah. out uh, for response. DJ, or DJ, you want to respond? Yeah, I mean, I, I would agree with that wholeheartedly. I mean, if you go back, I mean, you've got to go back to the to the 1990s. I think maybe 2000 or 2001 was the last time we had a budget surplus in the U.S. So we've got years and years of deficits. Right now, today, we're spending about $1.3 billion a day on interest. And as interest rates go up, that's going to get only bigger. Um, some of the CBO estimates, that's the Congressional Budget Office estimates, are that if we don't get control of that, interest will be the, lar- the fastest growing piece of the federal budget. Mm-hmm. And 10 years from now, it could be three times what it is today. And it's, I mean, it, it, it is a major concern. It's something we've got to address. You know, and as I said, the, the, the two choices are spend less or recover more taxes and revenues. And they've got to find a balance. And right now, we just haven't done that. There's too many competing forces. Yeah. So, yeah. Just so, why not raise uh, raise taxes on the top income earners? I'm fine with that. And I mean, I'm you know, you know, my taxes are, would probably go up. And that's something you have to pay for the privilege of being here in the United States. It's not free. Um, every government has to get revenue somehow, and the taxes need to be paid. Yeah. And we did have very high tax rates. I mean, this goes back, obviously, back in time, but, you know, around World War II, I think the top the top uh, tax bracket was, was, you know, 95 percent. It was an enormous amount of money, but obviously yeah, yeah, those were extenuating circumstances. Okay. We don't want to go, we don't want, don't want to go there, but uh, but anyway, I don't know if others have comments on this as we as we come to a... Uh, yeah. Well, I would just add, uh, just in terms of DJ's comments there, I mean, I, I agree with him in terms of the revenue side of the budget. Um, there are clearly things that can be done on the revenue side of the budget to, to enhance revenues. Um, I also think, though, that, you know, you have to look at the outlay side, the expenditure side of the budget as well. Now, I would say in terms of the, the Budget Control Act of 2011, what it did not do was really look at the revenue side. Uh, it looked at the uh, spending side. Um, it provided a sequestration program. Um, but it did not in any way look at the, really look at the revenue side or increase revenues, and that was a mistake. So I would say going forward, um, uh, going forward in the sense, the, the debate over the, over the spring and summer will be focused on, uh, from the Republican side, will be focused on spending. And I think that's a, uh, that it needs to be looked at, but it will be a mistake not to focus on the revenues as well. So I would say I would my I would call my approach a more balanced approach and and something that's more long-term sustainable. In addition, I would say we need to really look at um, not just individual income taxes, kind of this general tax, but um, payroll taxes as well. I mean, this is this is an opportunity to really shore up possibly Medicare, as I think President Biden has, has attempted to do, at least provide some additional revenues for for Medicare. But also Social Security. It's a time. It should be a time to look at the payroll tax very significantly, especially now that Social Security, Social Security trust funds are, are running in the in the deficit. Um, so to look to not look at the revenue side, and particularly the payroll tax side, I think would would be a mistake kind of going forward. Craig, I want to follow up on that because you know the Budget Control Act of t- 2011. I think that's when the word sequestration was sort of uh, introduced to the American people in general. And there, were, there was a lot of hand-wringing about that. So how has that worked out? I mean, what, uh, can you point to, to places where sequestration has been beneficial? Well, I think overall sequestration at that time reduced the growth in spending. It reduced the projected growth in spending. It didn't necessarily put us on a path to balance budgets in that sense, but it did reduce the growth in spending. And it was a political tool that enabled basically the Republicans and the Democrats to get together to vote to increase the, the debt ceiling. So um, it worked in, in that sense. I, I get the criticism of the sequestration program in general that takes the politics out of um, the political budget process. And politics is very important and it's fundamental to the, to the federal budget process. But if the politicians can't agree, and we need to still have some mechanism that uh, deals with the, the budget crisis, that deals with the debt ceiling crisis, et cetera. 
and the sequestration program allowed us to do that. Now, what I don't think, though, that many people understand the sequestration program, even after 2011, including uh, the financial markets and uh, Standard & Poor's and some of the other financial rating agencies and kind of the financial gatekeepers. So I do think if we are going to do another sequestration program, there needs to be much more clarity on what it will like, what it's intended to do, what it likely will do, and what the implications are for the for the whole federal budget process and and the, and the fiscal process going forward, the fiscal results really going forward. Was there a beginning and an end to sequestration, and how long did it last? Well, sequestration was changed. It was changed a number of times. Sequestration is subject to uh, Congress. So Congress changed the law shortly after the initial um, Budget Control Act of 2011 was passed, and it's been changed a number of other times. Basically, the spending caps were, were changed. Um, and it started with Grand Rudman Hollings back way before 2011, and it was changed uh, pretty much every year thereafter. So it's far, far from perfect, but it, it did at least at that time slow down the growth in projected spending. I want to ask about, you know, the, the story that's come out in the last couple of weeks is about banking and the security of our of our banks with the, the bank failures, the one in California, and I mean, there have been two or three others. Um, DJ, Craig, I know both of you have a lot that you can say about that. How worried should we be? Well, um, right now, I think that the Federal Reserve has, I think, taken the correct action so far in protecting the depositors. And it, it's important to understand that um, the, the, uh, the owners, the stockholders, and the bondholders in the banks are not being protected uh, necessarily. They are primarily protecting just the depositors. And a lot of that money that was deposited, even though it was deposited by corporations, a lot of that was to pay expenses, was to pay payroll. So I think that's a good thing. Um, the, the, the big issue, and I mean, especially with the um, SVB bank, the big issue there was they have what we call an asset liability mismatch. Back a year ago, they heavily invested in long-term treasuries and uh, mortgage-backed securities, which were paying a fairly low rate. And then as interest rates shot up, the value of those assets that they had declined, and they had big losses, and they had to basically mark those losses to market and they had to deal with them and that was something that was the reason that they got into trouble um it was just bad management on their part in terms of the assets that they suggested the other problem too is most of their deposits were large corporate deposits which could leave a bank very quickly as opposed to let's take somebody like the um iu credit union um, which we might all be familiar with Yes, it's much smaller, but the deposit base, it's primarily consumers. The money's not going anywhere. Um, and so it's just not as big of an issue, especially for the smaller banks. Craig, anything to add? Well, I, I, I'm not in disagreement with, uh, with DJ in, in general, but I do think that you know, it really is really a moral hazard problem here that needs to be addressed. And, uh, look, DJ mentioned the asset liability mismatch. I, I get that, and that is a real issue, General. That is a real issue. Um, but that's what bank people are paid to do. They're paid to manage their interest rate risk, and they're paid to manage their asset liability to, to match their assets and their liability. Um, they shouldn't be bailed out if they don't do that correctly. If, they, if, they, if there's some maybe extraordinary circumstance, like a pandemic, for example, and you just shut down the government, okay, I do uh, see some type of support, um, but these are the, these are their actions. These are the decisions that they made. They're getting paid a lot of money to to manage their interest rate risk, and they just didn't do a good job at managing their interest rate risk. And we, the taxpayers or other uh, depositors, frankly, should not bail them out. Um, the other thing I would say in, in this regard is, you know, this is a commercial bank, but it's really been run like a VC bank or an investment bank. Um, it, there's tremendous moral hazard if corporations, high-tech corporations or other corporations, don't believe that that $250,000 limit is a real limit, and they bet that it wasn't a real limit, and they bet correctly. Um, and, and that's that's a fundamental problem in terms of uh, the and not the fragility. I don't want to make that. I don't want to seem like the financial system or the banking system is so fragile it's about to collapse because it's not. 
Um, but the incentives that are in place with this bailout, and it is a bailout, and it's just on top of other bailouts, uh, it just increases the moral hazard in the financial system and the banking system in particular. And I think that's the wrong direction to go in, frankly, um, going forward. We only have two minutes to go, so I'm going to give you each a chance to address the politicians out there in the audience. What's one thing that you would like to see them do to help um, make our system or a process, if there is a process, better? Denville, you're kind of shaking your head. <laughs> I mean, so the the thing that I, you know that they need to do is stick to the federal budget process, like. You know, that process is in place for a reason. And if I think if they were to commit to doing or at least following the process that we'd we'd probably be in a better position. Um, we currently, as far as I, I last I checked, we still don't have congressional budget resolutions. You know, the president delivered his budget, I think, maybe a month beyond the time when it should have been delivered. So the process is not working. And that's the thing I would commit to is making the process work. Okay, Greg? Um, well, I think you, uh, I guess, <laughs> but I think you have to wind down from extraordinary measures. Uh, I believe in the federal government having capacity to take on crises, uh, as we did in the financial crisis, the Great Recession, um, and uh, the pandemic. Um, but once the crisis is over, there has to be some type of measure, and hopefully it's through the political system. But if not, we need uh, some other type of mechanism that winds down the expectations, and uh, as opposed to creating a new baseline of uh, just very, very high spending and, and relatively unsustainable revenue. All right, DJ, you have the last 30 seconds. All right, um, I would kind of agree with what's been said so far. I mean, the government has already backed off a bit on a lot of the extraordinary measures. Um, but yeah, I would agree with that. Uh, spending probably needs to get cut back, but definitely they need to address that tax situation. They need to see a ways to increase revenues. All right. Thank you. I want to thank our guests. All three of them have been great today, Denville Duncan and Craig Johnson from the O'Neill School of Public and Environmental Affairs at IU, and D.J. Masson, a clinical professor of finance at the Kelly School of Business at IU. For Lori McRobbie, our producer, Nathan Moore, our engineer today, Brock Hanneman. I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, providing financial support to the community for 55 years, promoting healthier lives and the advancement of future health care in our region, working together for a healthier tomorrow. More at bloomhf.org. And from Estate and Downsizing Specialists, LLC, offering complete turnkey services for estate and downsizing clients, from initial consultation through home cleanout to final real estate and personal property sales. More at edsindiana.com. <laughs>